Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Josh Condelman is a writer and comedian who currently writes and produces comedy for Jesus and Miro on Showtime. Before that, Gondelman spent five years at HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, earning multiple Emmys and other awards for his work on the writing staff. Much before that, before his comedy career took off, he taught preschool in the Boston area. As a performer, you've seen him tell jokes on Conan, The Late Late Show with James Corden, and Late Night with Seth Meyers, or you've heard him on one of his three comedy albums. As a writer, Gondelman's work has also appeared in McSweeney's, New York Magazine, The New Yorker, the modern Seinfeld parody Twitter account, and more. His book of essays, Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results, is out now. So let's get to it! So Josh Gondelman, thank you for welcoming me into your home. Thank you for joining me in my home. Um, it's a very nice thing for you to do. <laughs> well, it's also very convenient and lazy of me, because yes. this is just where I happen to be. Well, let's because you have a new book out, let's get this... Let's get right into it or get this out of the way first, depending on how you view it and how sure. our, the listeners view it. In writing your book, Nice Try, yeah, was was that the thing that finally made you become comfortable with being described as nice? Or were you already – had you already come to terms with the idea of that you're the nice comedian? That's a very um, – that's a very good question. Uh, and I was – I was already, I think, comfortable with being – well, so my discomfort – I have a slight discomfort with being described as the nice comedian, which is what you said, because yes. there are so many nice comedians. And I think that – But we all know what that's code for. No, 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 no. Yeah, I mean, yes, that's in the book, right? That, that, that's yeah, code. But right. there are comedians who are legitimately nice. Like, people have, like, uh, when I go on the road, mm-hmm. people will tell me about, like, the time they met John Oliver, knowing that I used to work for him. And they will tell, talk about the time that, like, they saw him five years ago, and he they he was so kind. And then they saw him year, three years after that, and he remembered them and was, you know, um, thoughtful and, and, hey, how are you doing? Even just, like, the the little niceness that you mm-hmm. that is surprising from a famous person, he – you know, that's so nice because he has so many of those interactions, like to, to remember someone's name that you met seeing them years apart. And like, um, you know, Dave Attell is like legendarily incredibly generous. Um, He's very nice to comedians yeah. and to audience members yeah. now. Yeah. That's, that's what I've heard. And, yeah. and, uh, I don't know him well, but like, but um, you wouldn't classify him as a nice people don't people don't talk about him that way right. because his <laughs> act is is so dirty right. and, and so like gleefully dirty um, and and also the other thing is like i think a lot of women are just like expected to be nice as a default mm. and so i kind of get damn patriarchy yeah and i kind of get a lot of um credit for things that are like that other people also do. So I, so that's my slight discomfort with being. And, do do other comedians hold regular Twitter pep talks? I don't think as much of, <laughs> of that, but I mean, there's plenty of nice things people do, mm-hmm. where, whether it's work with charities right. or you know, um, advocacy. Sure, or, you know, um, there are plenty of comedians who do a lot of fundraising. Yeah, and, and so for free. But I am I to to circle back. Mm-hmm. I had become previously comfortable with the idea of being a nice comedian and i i think i actually did it take a while for that or no uh, yeah it definitely did because like you alluded to earlier right it is like it's bad in comedy to be known primarily as nice a lot yeah. of the time it's like a, it's a euphemism for um not a great act mm-hmm. Um, not even like that fun to be around right like when you say like oh super nice you go oh okay like benign mm-hmm. is like what is what the what or the, the or when you're is. describing a blind date to somebody yeah and you describe them as nice yeah a great, the, great nice is a complimentary word but in most contexts it's used as a as, as a, it's used to avoid saying passive, something true and mean or something perceived true slight. yes yeah it's damning someone with faint praise mm-hmm. so it it did take a little while for me to get comfortable with that idea because um 
it before I had any other anything else to stake my name on Mm -hmm. I had a small reputation you know in certain comedy circles that is I think people meant very genuinely but is also the exact same word that someone with a bad reputation would have was there any part of that that made that made you more tempted to take the job with Jesus and Miro no, I just like, like a- <laughs> I just like them and want and like the job. You know, it was like a an exciting opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, because I, I think that like, I don't think they're demonstrably less nice than like John is on TV. Like Oliver's jokes are like sledgehammer mean, yes. t- like brutal. Like, but they, uh, because but they're so um, targeted that he knows exactly who he wants to be really funny and mean to. Here, as I was getting ready to come interview you, I had to be confronted with the fact that I didn't realize how young you were when I first met you. Oh, is that true? <laughs> I was very young when because we first I met you when you were still in, in Boston. Boston. Well, I went to an I went to the open mic that you had in Somerville at Sally O'Brien's. Yeah, sure. But so, but you must have been in your very early twenties then. So I hosted that mic probably from when I was like. 23 or 24 to like 26 mm-hmm. i because i i took it over i took it over in, I, I started when i was 23 because i took it over in 08 i think when mike kaplan moved to new york from boston and and gave it up um and, and passed it on to me so but yeah. you were already going to that mike yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. i i mean i was yes yeah, so i must have been like 22 or when i started when i, when I was 19 in boston and and I wasn't, like, out that much. I was doing mostly, like, the open mic at the mm-hmm. vault once a week or so. And then by the time I was, like... So tw- you were a stand-up comedian before you were a preschool teacher. That's true. Well, I... Um, all my, if we're getting the biography correct. All my pre... So I taught preschool full-time mm-hmm. for four years after I graduated college. But you but started I, when you were 19, so... But before that, mm-hmm. I was, like, a preschool assistant like i'd I'd worked in classrooms since i was like 16 oh or or like summer programs but you know with a with a preschool Mm -hmm. it's like fairly similar the the what you do with two and a half year olds or three and a half year olds Mm -hmm. in november is not that dissimilar from what you do with them in july well, I thought you were going to say it's not too dissimilar with what you do with drunk 23-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that happens too. You it's, get a corral them. Right, it's the same. But it is like, yeah. It, it's it, psychological dynamic. It's a lot of like focusing up rowdy crowds and mm-hmm. like trying to be entertaining enough that they don't uh, yell and puke. But but those two things appealed to you at the same time when you were a teenager? I, Being a preschool teacher and being a stand-up? Yeah, I mean, I was do. I definitely overlapped right. for, for starting from a pretty young age, and I think, I mean, the the education stuff was my mom was the director of a small private school, okay. and so I worked for her in the summers. So it was just like an easy thing where I didn't have to like apply, and it was it was more fun than working retail, and I didn't have to work nights, and um, so it was like a very convenient thing to do. And then when I graduated college, my I was like just looking at jobs mm-hmm. like i was like what's a job uh you know what i mean i was just like i guess i'll just sit in an office and wear a tie mm-hmm. and then i'll go out and do shows at night and write uh nights and weekends and stuff and my mom was like why don't you just do why don't you just teach like you're almost even though i didn't have an education degree i was like because of my classroom experience at that point i had the hours and i just had to take one community college class with no teacher it was like a self-taught community okay. college class um and then i was certified to be a head teacher so i i was like oh yeah i could just do that more and so i taught and tutored in um in boston for four years and then i when i moved here in 2011 i stopped teaching preschool after you know four years of being mm-hmm. full-time and um and but still tutored were there any were there any moments or times in those first few years when you were still in Boston where the kids' parents saw you perform? Yeah. So I don't know if they came live, but I was very careful about what I put online. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wouldn't put up videos unless they were really clean. I was much more careful on like social media about not saying things, not even that were like offensive, but just that were adult in right. tone. 
Um, not suitable for three year olds. Yeah, and one time one of the kids came and came in and was like, "We saw I saw a video of you on YouTube," and I was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> and uh, it was fine. They're, all the family's really sweet. And then since then, since mm-hmm. I left, um, families had come to see like my set when I recorded my second album. Mm-hmm. Probably like six parents from kids I, of kids I used to teach came to the because I recorded it at the. Um, it was called the. Somerville Theater, and now it's the Rockwell. Maybe it was Jimmy Tingles years ago. Oh, okay. It, and it's I know, um, space. yeah, Somerville it's Theater, the basement spot. Yeah, because the Davis Square Theater—that's the big one across mm-hmm. the street, right? That's like that's the movie theater and concert venue. I thought the big one was was Somerville Theater. theater. Okay, sorry. So it was Davis Square Theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was Davis Square Theater when I recorded, and now it's I think the Rockwell. Okay, mm-hmm. but it was a nice little black box. I love spot. it. It's like about two hundred seats. I think yeah. they crammed like two twenty in for my recording. It was great. Yeah, it's uh, a basement, so it's got a low yeah, ceiling. Yeah, low ceiling. It's like real it's a good good vibe. Now how did you how did you decide it was ready to both leave the job and leave Boston behind? I had a breakup in twenty ten mm-hmm. with somebody I was I was dating someone who I think felt very tied to New England mm-hmm. and and I felt very you know, we were pretty it was serious enough that I was like oh, I could see this relationship moving forward in a way that I would also be happy to be, like, tied to New England. Like, it, it was just, I was like, that that could be a direction my life goes. And when we broke up, I was like, oh, this is an opportunity to pursue this other kind of uh, life. Like, I, I wasn't going to break up with her to move to New York. But when we broke up, I was like, oh, if there was ever a time to move to New York... The time is now. And and I'd started dating someone who lived in New York at that point by the time I moved. So we broke up in like summer of 2010 Mm -hmm. and I decided I wasn't ready to just like up and leave. Like I wasn't running away, but I did. I thought, you know, I'll teach one more year with the intention of saving up a little money, um, figuring out how to situate myself in the comedy scene a little better uh, in New York. and, And then I would go. And it just felt like all the signs were pointing to like if you if you're gonna give it a shot now is the time now as someone who so you have a year where you know what you're gonna do and yeah you're preparing for it and you're in boston which is 200 miles away so it's pretty far but it's not that far so yeah. you could make frequent trips did you what did you do during that year to prepare yourself professionally i was i I was so i was coming here because i i my girlfriend at the time lived here Mm -hmm. so i'd come here and she was she's also um our our writer performer Mm -hmm. so she was very cool about like if i wanted to visit her and also do sets so i was doing that i was trying to kind of just like i was also on the road a bunch it was like the first year like from middle of 2010 onward it was the first year i was on the road at all oh that reminds me, you yeah. had done a, the laughing skull. Uh, yeah. Yep. What year did you do that? So that was 2010. That was like right okay. before. This that's... was a competition in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I think now it's not so much a competition. I think it's, it's just showcase, a festival. But, yeah. But at the time, it was a stand-up competition, mm-hmm. and the prize was was a bunch gigs. of work on the road. Yeah. It was like a little bit of money. I mean, it was like five hundred dollars, which is like a substantial <laughs> amount of money. But it's also not you can't quit your job with $500, right. but it was enough road work that I was like, okay, I'm working a little bit. So that was also part of it. Um, that let me feel like, Oh, maybe there's a future in this. I mean, like it was, my career was getting to a point where like, I wasn't, um, making a good living, but enough good things had happened mm-hmm. professionally. And then I had enough flexibility personally that it felt like, okay, maybe it's not a, an unreasonable thing to jump into this bigger pond and try to thrive in this way. And and the other impetus for it, which didn't make me think I could do it, but the reason for coming here instead of staying in New England was I I felt like I had hit the ceiling of, especially at the time, what I was going to, what I was going to achieve there. Like Mm -hmm. I was, I was working at many of the clubs and working for many of the bookers who booked outside rooms, you know, Elks lodges and fundraisers and um, restaurant gigs and stuff. And I wasn't going to jump to headliner in part because it's like a pretty, it's a tough nut to crack in New England, like starting to headline. And I just wasn't, my act wasn't strong in the way it would have needed to be at the time. Okay. So I thought like, okay, I've, I've reached my ceiling for the foreseeable future. 
but there are things that I want to achieve that maybe I can achieve not here. Like I wasn't going to get a job writing for television out of Boston, but I, if I, but I came here with the thought of, Oh, maybe this will be possible. Like it's a different kind of achievement and a different kind of work that's required. And and I, you're just not eligible for it really, unless you're in a place where it happens. Right. Um, but getting back to that laughing skull contest, I'm curious to know, you know, they advertise that you get money. Yeah. Turns out it's 500 bucks. But then it was like a substantial number of gigs that they yeah. advertised mm-hmm. giving you. What did those gigs turn out to be? So some of them were really great. It was a lot of... I, were they feature work? Some of them were feature weeks. Some of them were headline gigs. Okay. Um, the Were they all with the same... No, 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 team? no. Okay. So it was like a lot of um, following up with different... Mm-hmm. Bookers, like I got a spreadsheet basically mm-hmm. of of like here are the people who have promised to Spots. hook you up. Yeah, mm-hmm. so some people were like incredibly responsive and booked me right away. Mm-hmm. Some people never ended up booking me. Some people it took a while to like wrangle the calendars. I had some really great weeks because of that, uh, because of that festival and some like rough ones. Like I did a headline week in Chattanooga that I just like wasn't well suited to that room. And I think I like ended up the feature was like really funny, really strong, high energy dude. And I just like couldn't follow him. And the club owner after like the first show or first two shows just like flipped us. And it was like super demoralizing. Uh, But it was like a really good learning experience Mm -hmm. because it's very easy. I think when you look at um, like the calendar of a club, maybe to be like, I could, I should be headlining. Like I've this, I don't have any fewer credits than this guy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you go in and you're like, Oh, I'm just not suit. I'm not perfect for every room or, and like, I, I need to get stronger before I could do that. Where's that act now? From He's, I, I, I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a while, but like he had been doing really well. Like he, cause he's based out of Atlanta okay. um, and was uh, like a festival killer too. Okay. I haven't seen him in a long time. Hmm. He's very fun. I like very funny, really strong. Um, and, but I, and I think now I could probably go back and close that room credibly, but at age, you know, 20, I mean, it was probably right before my 26th birthday that I went, I probably went like January, like early January, 2011. And I think I just like was my, it was like clever and like genial, but a little flimsy. Like I, I didn't whether it was my stage presence or the mm-hmm. writing, but I just couldn't like hold a room in the way that you need to closing out a show doing 45 minutes. Sure. In, in that, in those circumstances. On, on the flip side, were there any rooms that came out of that contest that you developed longstanding relationships with? Yeah, I think so. I'm trying to think because a lot, there were a few places that I went in as a feature and went back to as a feature a number of times, which mm-hmm. is great. And there were um, like Cap City I, I went back Austin. Yeah, in Austin, which is a really fun room. Yeah, that's a good and I went room. back as a feature a couple times and had like great experiences there. And I also I got a college agent out of that festival. And so for a couple years there I wasn't doing a ton of colleges, but they were so financially helpful mm-hmm. to have a gig on the calendar that it was like you know, that would pay like 1200 bucks. It was to me, that was, that was like an unfathomable amount of money to make for an hour of work. And those ones I was a little better suited to. Like there were some, some college gigs are really tough because the circumstances can be so wacky. Like, I mean, that's like the same story everybody tells of like cafeteria, right. 11 AM. That was my first one. And I was sent there. I, no I think stage. it was kind of like a test. Yeah. Of like 11 AM gig, um, at, in a cafeteria while everybody's mm-hmm. eating and in, in um Shreve not Shreveport maybe Shreveport Louisiana mm-hmm. in Louisiana for sure okay. and I like almost missed the gig because my flight got canceled and I had to get up to fly there and go right to the gig the next morning because it was an 11 a.m. Right. gig and it was like you know, the earliest flight got me there just in time and they couldn't push it by, you know, I was like, well, can we push it half an hour? And they said, no, because at 1150, everyone goes to class. So like the place is a ghost town at 1150. So it's not like, it, it was like almost like a high school schedule. Right. So it was like those kind of things, but also some of them were really wonderful. I did a college gig that was so restorative after I'd been in New York for maybe a year and I felt like I wasn't making a ton of progress. 
Um, there were little things here and there that felt good, but I did this college gig two weeks apart. Two, I did gigs two weeks apart. One was another cafeteria gig that I was like, this is pretty rough. And the other one was like a full 700 person theater that was just like, this is what all the first and second years on campus or all the first years came to this. And it was so fun. And I did an hour and was like, I'm the king of humor. Like I'm the funniest man alive. And obviously I wasn't, but it was like such a confidence boost to go into this, like uh, basically rural Missouri Mm -hmm. to this uh, um, state school, Truman state, I think it was called that. It was like a state school for artsy kids. And it was, it was so fun. So when uh, when Pete Holmes had his show on HBO, Christian, yeah. how did you did you watch that? With, I've, like, I've seen some. Did did you watch it with like an intentful eye, going, "Well, that's sort of what my experience." A, a was. A lot of or... it felt really dead on in mm-hmm. my experience. Like some of it was like a little embellished for TV, but those kind of like those moments of you know working with headliners that like give very like give various degrees of a shit about you or like the getting booked because you have a car or, you know, like kind of going to a college and having like, um, just a weird unconventional experience. I think they like nailed several different comedy things in a way that was like very close to the bone. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I'm just wondering as someone like who comes to New York, you've got these credits and you've got these gigs under your belt. But then you're like such a mild mannered, yeah, guy in public. I don't know what you like in private, but pretty mild mannered. <laughs> I mean, like, but, but like in a like I, I'm picturing you now. Like, I'm thinking about how Pete picture, depicted himself in crowd, yeah, like walking into the comedy cellar, and I can see you doing that and like trying to fit in with the. It was it was a tough l- crowd. It was a little different, just in that I don't think. I I think by the time I got here, there was things, everything felt a little more like codified and Mm -hmm. entrenched. And so there was no, like, there was no, like, barking at the Boston by the time I got here. There was no, um, you know, like, I think um, there were still, like, late nights at the Strip, but those, that audition process was, like, it was so weird and rigorous Mm -hmm. and they just didn't need that many new people there were so many comedians by that time already that like it just felt um like and there there wasn't a lot of like i show up at the cellar and i hang out and i hope that someone recognizes me as a comedian i did a little of that at various places and it always just felt so un excuse me it always just felt so unnatural that I, i always found like it, over years, I figured out that the best way for me to do something like that is to, like, go where a friend will be and hang out with my friend and, like, you know, maybe talk to the bookers or the mm-hmm. other comics if I know them or if my friend wants to introduce me. But, like, just showing up and, and like, hoping someone's like, are you a comedian? Well, tonight's your night because someone's running late was just, like, never – it just – it felt so daunting and i don't think i had the personality of like hey if you need a guy i'm the guy i'm a guy i could be your guy so it was a tight 15 yeah and and, um it also i was very fortunate that i didn't push too hard because i think it took me like a full six months to get my sea legs here Mm -hmm. in terms of like figuring out the rhythm of the occasional club rooms I was getting to play and the alt rooms, like it just feels just like feeling out those different vibes took me a, a, a while as because it's very different than it's pretty different than rooms in Boston. And it's very different than rooms. The rooms I was getting to play here are very different than rooms on the road, even, even good rooms. I, I know you go back, uh, ways with Mike Kaplan. Yeah. You mentioned one of the strategies was hanging out with a friend. Yeah. What kind of, what kind of advice or tutelage did he offer? Oh, Mike is great. He's like, I mean, he's so funny and so scrupulous about his writing that he really is mindful of like saying exactly the things he wants to say on stage, which is not something he ever said to me explicitly of like, do it like that. But it is really instructional of like, you watch the things he's, talking about whether it's um you know his veganism Mm -hmm. or polyamory or psychedelics and he'll 
talk about stuff in a way that's like completely on his terms with an audience. And even before he was as intentional about that, like, I mean, you know, his act from Boston where Mm -hmm. it was like, he was just doing stuff that was like so fast paced and quick, silly and smart. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like really great to see. And it, it was so, and he would do rooms where like they didn't get a lot of that. And he would go to those places and like, and he would do his thing and and it and he would make it work like that was the you know that was the idea it wasn't like i'm gonna go here and bomb because i'm better than these people he's like i'm gonna bring these people on board with what i do that was the intent but also he he has been such an amazing um friend in comedy just in terms of being like incredibly centered about things of like look if it's not this thing there will be another thing or like don't worry about this like this is not going to make or break your career, your life. That kind of stuff has been so helpful. And he's recommended me for stuff over the years. Um, Like, so those two things are equal, like him kind of pushing me ahead in terms of like, Oh, we need someone for this gig. I can't do it. Josh could do it, which is, which is so generous. And then the opposite of that is like when I was not progressing at Mm -hmm. the, the speed that I had hoped, he's like the most, thoughtful centered person about just like all you can control is what you do the Mm -hmm. work you make and then after that uh that's um you know that's up to other people and you can't getting hung up on that is like kind of a fool's errand right and it's like very reasonable to feel disappointed when things don't go your way but like to focus on the work you're making and um and the things that are that you can like okay, I can have a hand in influencing this and I can send out this many emails to people and like fill my calendar as opposed to waiting for approval from like, um, you know, hoping that once a year when the Just for Laughs people audition, hold auditions, that they see you and are like, you're on a rocket ship to stardom, kid. Like, you know, so, I, and that was so helpful because I felt like my stand-up, other than the Laughing School, which was so exciting, kind of progressed slower than a lot of friends sure so you would you had mentioned earlier that one of the perks of moving to new york was that you could get a gig writing for a tv show yeah was there a point earlier in your career where your goals you had to try to decide well if my performing isn't progressing as well as i like maybe the writing is where it's gonna go or or was writing something you already had in mind? I definitely already had it in mind, but I so I went into call. I came into college thinking I was going to write plays. Okay, because that's I did that in high school to like some high school level success, which was exciting. And you know, it was one of those things where I was like, "Oh, maybe this is the guy I am." Did you know that was Lewis Black's? I didn't at the time. I know now. Template. I just heard. Um, I saw. Uh, Kevin McDonald. I think I heard him on a, a podcast a mm-hmm. long time ago talking about it, but I saw Kevin McDonald's one man show talking oh, yeah. about how did you see the show? Yeah, I did. So they he the story about Lewis yeah. Black opening for them and for the kids in the hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For kids in the hall, which was like so charming and so, that story's so funny. Um <laughs> This guy's not gonna make it. <laughs> yeah. That's but that's so funny that 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 was their impression of him and like of course everyone in America knows who Lewis Black yeah. is. Um and so for you though So I came you, you oh, started thinking you were going to write plays and then left college thinking I was going to write like funny fiction. Okay. That's what I kind of pivoted to after my first year. I was like, okay, I'm a fiction major. My thesis was a book of short stories. Um, and, and so I was like, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And my, you know, my, um, advisor, Steve McCauley, who's a great fiction writer was very encouraging. And I, I just like, didn't have the, I wasn't, that good as a fiction writer. I was like fine as a fiction mm-hmm. writer uh, for my age and experience, but I also didn't have the like sit down and write for hours on a blank page, submit to literary mag, submit short stories, mm-hmm. or like come up with a full manuscript to query agents. I just like didn't have that discipline. I love doing stand up where I could be like, is this anything? It is <laughs> great. Or like, it's not duly noted audience. <laughs> and, um, I loved that. And, and so I had drifted away from other writing. I'd done like a, a pilot, uh, uh, no, a spec script mm-hmm. that was not good. Cause I didn't like learn how to do that. Right. Okay. But I, I did, there were 
the idea was some kind of writing. But by the time I left Boston, I had seen enough people that had gotten like whisked away because of their stand up or like had used stand up credits in Massachusetts as like a launch pad. Like Kaplan was, got right. TV while he was still living in Boston and did, did JFL, I think, while he was still living in Boston. And um, like Joe List had started opening for big name people they would take him out on the road yep. and, and so those and, and um the walsh brothers booked uh the hbo aspen Fest, and bulger mm-hmm. was doing tv and stuff so like i had friends that were succeeding in that way and it was not happening for me in the same way um and, and i think because like my act was not on par with theirs especially at the time and, and so i thought like okay if this is not my way in I have to put myself where the opportunities for like people who have my skill set are, or even the stuff that they were doing, right? Like booking um, an appearance on Live at Gotham on Comedy Central, something like that. I was like, okay, they come to Boston. I'm at the mercy of whether the club booker in Boston wants to showcase me, whether the Comedy Central people want to see me. Like, you're not going to get seen by accident there, or I, I certainly wasn't. And so I was like, let me just put myself in a place where these things just kind of happen you more like mm-hmm. there's there's just more molecules colliding what was the first writing break you got i was i got asked to do i was submitting stuff here and there i i wrote a little thing that ran on mcsweeney's right before i moved oh. um yeah that was exciting and then the first like person that reached out i was writing you know little bloggy things here and there Excuse me. And when my my girlfriend and I, who who was also a writer, broke up, mm-hmm. someone from the cut at New York Mag, what their you know their kind of fashion right. women's magazine website, um, was like, "Will you guys write about your breakup and we'll pay you money?" Oh, and, and so that was like I think the first time someone sought me out and was like, "We'll pay. We recognize that you are a writer and have something maybe to say about this, and we'll commission this piece." And so. Stuff like that started happening more and more. And so before TV, it was like a lot. I wrote for a lot of women's magazines. I wrote for The Cut. I, I've written for Glamour, Cosmo, Women's Health. Um, well, they, you know, Nice Guy is the conduit into the, it, it the is, world I, of and, evil men. And it was also like, as I think uh, a straight guy mm-hmm. who could write for women instead of just about women, mm-hmm. I... I was like a valuable commodity because they would need one of those every once in a while. And sometimes just to do like real dirtbag stuff. Like when uh, Manti Teow had got busted having that fake girlfriend, right? He made up his girlfriend or was catfished and, and just kind of rolled with it. Um, He, uh, they, uh, the cut reached out and was like, there's services you can buy where you can have someone pretend to be your girlfriend, like send you notes, call you at work so that your secretary picks up. Oh. And they, so I, so you don't just have to have a girl, a fake girlfriend in Canada. Yeah, exactly. Which yes, is what yes, we yes. did before the end. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> it was, um, it was, he wouldn't know her. She goes to a Canadian high school. Yeah. Um, and this was that, but for the digital oh. age. And so they, they like gave me a budget to hire this, the non-sexual services of, fake girlfriends and um and write about it so stuff like that now of course when you're talking about writing short funny things for magazines the kind of the be all end all credit is the new yorker yeah how many times did you submit something to them before you got in do you know i don't it wasn't that many but i did have one that got really close and then got killed and ended up running on mcsweeney's okay and it was at least it ran somewhere yeah it was a real bummer at the time i mean i was very excited to have it run to mcsweeney's but Mm -hmm. the moment that i saw that i got killed at the new yorker was very disappointing and i kind of stomped around for a couple days i was having like a real rough couple months and this must have been late 2013 Mm -hmm. where so i'm kind of jumping around a bunch but like i'd been so at this point i had done at late 2012, my friend Jack Moore and I co-created the Modern Seinfeld Twitter account, which was like right. even more than the Laughing Skull Festival, which was like comics knew about. This was the first thing that like regular people like it, when that was announced at shows, they'd be like, "This guy created co-created Modern Seinfeld Twitter account." People in the audience would be like, "Oh," and it's like, "Oh, he's a guy from that," mm-hmm. and and that's his thing, and and so it was like the first thing that gave me that kind of like, it, like 
heat, as it were, mm-hmm. like a little industry heat, but also just like that kind of energizing effect with audience. The people were like, oh, you're the guy that did that. Um, so that happened in late 2012. In 2013, I did um, – I got to do a tiny bit – I spent the whole year just applying to TV jobs mm-hmm. and um, among you know tutoring, still writing for magazines, still doing stand-up. And I did a tiny bit of writing for Billy on the Street. That was my first okay. TV thing. Um, and then by late that year, I was kind of back in a doldrum where I just applied for shows. I'd gotten this very small amount of money to do creative consulting on, on Billy's show, mm-hmm. which was, um, not, not to say that it was unfair, just to say that like, it was not sustaining me financially, even though it was so exciting to get to do. And he's so funny. And I was like, Oh, this is so cool. And then four months later, I was like, Oh, maybe that was it. Maybe that was like the high water mark. That's one of the things in show business that people don't like to talk about because everybody thinks that once you have a, a high profile gig, yeah. that you're making it yes, in show business. And for sure. Times you're not financially yeah. making it. And this, so it was, um, so that it was tough. I and I felt like. I was getting all these opportunities and maybe I'm just going to blow them all like, or, mm-hmm. or not blow them, but just not rise to the occasion. Not like I was um, flaming out just that like I, I w- was never burning that brightly at all was the, <laughs> was the uh, um, fear. So that is to say I submitted either maybe the second thing I ever submitted to the New Yorker around then and it, they bought it and then, so I think someone above the head of whoever approved it must have squashed it. Yeah. And it was a real bummer. So that was maybe second, maybe third thing I submitted to them. And then I think the next thing they took. So And I've been in a pretty nice role with them for the last couple of years. I don't submit that often, but I've done like probably four or five things for is them. Is there like a secret sauce to that I think process? it is. It's knowing the tone really well. Mm-hmm. Um, like knowing the kind of like general language parameters and the length. It's just like hitting the form is really helpful and you can do, you know, you can stretch the tone a little bit or stretch the form a little bit, but it helps to know like what that strike zone is and, and like how to, you know, if you're going to try to uh, throw a backdoor slider, you've got to know like who you're pitching to, if that makes sense to use like a tortured baseball analogy. No, it's funny because, you know, you mentioned earlier that you wrote a spec script, but it wasn't any good because you didn't know how to write a spec script. But now, years later, you've you've hit for the cycle. Thank you <laughs> to, to torture that analogy more. Yeah, no, because you, you know, modern Seinfeld that wouldn't have taken off as a Twitter as a parody Twitter account if you guys weren't. We do, yeah. We knew the tone. the tone. Yeah, I think we had of the tone. Nineteen ninety sitcom. Yep. A decade later. Yes. Um, shouts and murmurs, being able to figure that out. Yep. That's something that writers all over the country, if not the world, are trying to figure out for sure i've um, i have friends that are that's like a long-term goal for them and i don't know that it's like some of it is just kind of like if you know you know mm-hmm. and then other or like trying it enough times that like you find the venn diagram of like your voice their voice and you you hit that middle uh sliver of the venn diagram however big or small that is but then your current job and your previous job are both high profile TV writing yeah. for distinctive points of view that are not the same point of view. Yes, very different points of view. Um, so I I got hired to do digital and social stuff for last week tonight in 2014. So like, so you came in through the I I applied as a writer. Side. Well, I applied as a writer, mm-hmm. and they kind of were like, "Well, you're basically like ninth on a list of eight, and we have this other job that we think you would be good for because you have this experience writing for the internet, like, uh, you know." columns for websites Mm and and twitter and and so they offered me this job and i took it and it was i didn't really know what to expect i i got hired like two weeks after the writing staff so there wasn't um there wasn't like a show that i was walking into and so i saw the show take shape from the inside and kind of helped support it on the the digital and social side and then i got moved over to write for the show um season two and i was there i was there for five years and i wrote for the show for seasons two through five which is very exciting and incredibly like i couldn't and like all so much of that kind of um early fear of like maybe i'll never do anything Mm -hmm. has 
dissipated and has been replaced by a by a bunch of different fears <laughs> what's what's more exciting on a very superficial level uh getting to go to the emmy awards yeah or getting to have your your mug on screen in a silly graphic oh that's i mean <laughs> ooh, that's good both were very fun i think i think the which makes your parents wear family i think the proud. emmy <laughs> I think going to the Emmys, it's just like such a thing. Uh, like it's it's such a thing that even if, like you know, my parents watched the show mm-hmm. and their friends watch the show, and, and but even if they didn't, mm-hmm. even if they never did, like being nominated for an Emmy is like a thing parents friends understand as a benchmark of success, and so that is like, inc- it takes so much of the pressure off having had that happen at like, you know, functions where I'm seeing extended family or friends of family. It, it just doesn't, um, there's not the same, like, or it's much less of like, are you still doing that comedy? <laughs> like it just, it, it like takes so much of that pressure off having done things. Here's my, here, hold my Emmy. I know. Well, it's like, it's not, you know, I don't, uh, it doesn't get to that point, but they, it's, it, I've done enough stuff that they've, recognized as like um it's like visible parent approved Mm -hmm. achievement so how did you decide in the past year that you wanted to or you needed to leave i got asked to interview for desus and marrow when Mm -hmm. they were moving from viceland to showtime Mm -hmm. and i went in and had a great meeting and got offered a job that was like a pretty um like it's a, just a different job. Like I'm a writer, but I'm also a supervising producer, which was like a different kind of responsibility than I had at last week. And it was like very exciting to have, to get that kind of promotion mm-hmm. um, to, as a writer and a producer, you know, I didn't have to like leave writing behind to work on logistical stuff. I'm, I like kind of have the best of both worlds uh, where I'm like pitching stuff and writing stuff, but I'm also in the edit for the show and, you know, working on those kind of things. And, and it's very exciting. Uh, and I like them so much. I think they're so funny. So it was like, I, I wouldn't have left unless truly, unless I had the chance to move from like, what was a dream job to a different dream job. I think I would have happily stayed if either, you know, if they had just been like, Hey, would you like to come and be a staff writer here? I might have been like, well, I have a really great staff writing job that I've been at. And like, I know is going to be around and, and I get along with everybody like, cause those are so many of so many of the factors, right? Is like, even if you love the show or the, the on-air talent or the sense of humor, it's like still a place that you have to go and be at an office all day. So it's like, I love the last week tonight staff and it was very sad to leave. And I moved three floors up in the same <laughs> office building. And so I see people all the time just in the <laughs> elevator. So it, it that cushioned the blow a little bit. Well, and they're such different shows too. Yes. Not just not just because of the host, but also the format. Yes. I mean, you know, last week tonight is such a deep dive mm-hmm. into a topic, whereas these these Mero can go anywhere yeah, and everywhere. Right. It is um they are so improvisational and so much of what we do is like creating um pathways for them to f- get to where what they think will be funny right. and, and improvise like on set or in within sketches that we were, you know, like we write out stuff. And then it's also like we shot a sketch that I'd written right before we went on break for, for August and, and early September. And we wrote, I had written it. So like here are a bunch of jokes. Mm-hmm. And if you won't like, you know, we'll do a bunch of takes where we get some of this. And then like you guys do what you think would be funny in, the, mm-hmm. in these circumstances uh, because they work so well, just bouncing off each other in a way that like, is so hard to capture uh, just like guessing what will create that spark. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, once you have an idea proved that, you know, they think is funny, just like creating opportunities for them to like, it actually sounds as you're describing it, yeah. it sounds less like writing sketches as it is sitcoms. It's you put them in a situation yes. and allow yeah. them to find yep. the comedy. In totally. The situation. But it is like very sketch based in that, like the it's like super premise, heavy mm-hmm. and then we're like okay then then what would the beats of this be and then we, then Jesus and Mara like explore that on set and riff on that on set um and it's it's very 
uh, it's been really fun and it's a totally different mode of writing than I was used to doing for years. And it's like, again, a different set of responsibilities. So it's just a very, it's been, excuse me, it's been a really wonderful year of just like new things and working with new people. And fortunately, like this staff is amazing and I get to work with so many cool people. What is the difference like with, with last week tonight, because of the deep dives, it feels like there's as much a focus on moving the needle on an issue as there is landing a lot of jokes. Sure. What is, what is kind of your overall goal with an episode of Jesus and Mero? So, I, I wouldn't – not to be um, contentious. No, I would say it's less about moving the needle and more about, like, telling an interesting story in a funny way. Okay. So it wasn't like this is going to have X impact in the world. It was like – You're not trying to get FIFA officials fired. Yeah, exactly. But happened. we are trying to – It just to... happened and that's, that was a great thing. <laughs> We're just trying to tell people a story they haven't heard in a mm. way that's funny and surprising. Okay. So um, that's how that's how I always thought of it as, like, we're not, like – it's – it's not you're not trying to be activist yeah or like we're just trying to like say what uh be interesting mm-hmm. in a way that is funny like be okay. funny and while telling an interesting story and then at Jesus and Marrow it's like the be funny is so foregrounded mm-hmm. that it's like it almost doesn't matter what the stories are right. like and, and i think the challenge is like making find, finding stories that are like topical and um, relevant and that people are talking about. And, and then Jesus and Mero come at it, just come at the news and culture from like a different angle than everyone else on late night. And by virtue of like that, they're two, uh, two men of color who grew up in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. So they have a different point of view than like, I would say everybody else hosting a late night show, like informed by that, but also just their comedic sensibility is like so improvisational and so smart and silly and dirty in a way that is uh just they it's just to like bring that perspective and that that sense of humor uh, put it on screen and like figure out a way to sorry that's fine um and present yeah present that on screen so for people who follow you online um can you explain your your uh sneaker collection sure um (laughs) what's 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 going on there? Oh, that's okay. Mary, you don't have to. That's okay. Hi, Biz. Um, I, I have a lot of sneakers. I started... Yeah, when did that when I, did that start becoming an issue? I got... Well, okay, so <laughs> the last couple of years it's been an issue. Mm-hmm. But I started collecting because I worked with... Um, at Caroline's, I opened for Ron Funches. Okay. And Yasser Lester was on the bill, too. And they just had great sneakers Mm -hmm. and it was right around the first time i was nominated for an emmy okay and i was like i should get some good sneakers and i and yasser for the emmys no not that year i have worn sneakers to the emmys but that year (laughs) i was like it was more to celebrate than anything else and and more as a present yeah just like a commemoration yeah it is and it is it's an honor just to be nominated that is not wrong so it started with being nominated for an emmy yeah and and just like seeing being like, oh, that they have some really cool sneakers in a way mm-hmm. that I hadn't considered. And Yasser also co-hosts a great sneaker podcast with oh. his brother Isaiah called My Brother's Sneaker. Okay, and um, it just was like, oh, this is a way because I have a pretty um, not plain, but like I don't have a super flamboyant st- fashion sense. Mm-hmm. But I I will wear like pretty preposterous sneakers, even though like I wear a lot of like regular jeans, mm-hmm. cardigans plain t-shirts or like band t-shirts but i i like a very flamboyant sneaker and so it's been like a fun just like i don't know it's like a fun way to commemorate exciting occasions to like get you know i bought a pair of sneakers that i wore for when i did cordon earlier Mm -hmm. this year and now i you know i wear them pretty infrequently but when i do i think about that and it's very exciting and um and you don't buy a new pair for every episode. No, of not show. of Jesus and Marrow. Okay. I try to rotate them out so I don't repeat that much on show days. But like I do Because I was starting to go I wasn't no, no, no. close enough track to know, but it was no, starting to work. There I there were a lot there were like the first twenty episodes I think I didn't repeat, but mm-hmm. I wasn't buying new ones. It was like shoes that shoes that I had. 
Uh, so as I look around the apartment, I see lots of books. Yes. Where are the shoes hiding? The shoes are, I have like a, a bunch of plastic, uh, clear plastic boxes in the bedroom Mm -hmm. that are like kind of stacked like three across by like seven with some shoe boxes on top of those. And then another stack of shoe boxes. So just like Seinfeld has his Porsches, you have your sneakers. Yeah, that's right. It's, um, are you brand loyal or do you go? I'm not brand loyal. I have no, I, I like the look of a lot of Nikes, but I wear a lot of Adidas runners for comfort yeah, and I, I like them as well. Yeah. But, um, so I, I have no brand loyalty. Okay. So at this point, uh, you know, to bring it on home, please, where is your career, uh, compared to where you thought it might be? It's very different. I didn't. I never when you when you when you were I, when you were planning to leave Boston. Yeah. The, I mean this is like beyond what I could have expected. Mm-hmm. And, and there's still a lot of stuff that I would love to do that I haven't done, but just like the I don't know. I I'm so bad at like 5-year plan stuff, so I just kind of came here being like I would love to do something and I have done some things Mm -hmm. and and it feels really great and it like opens up i think the the best part is like i've worked on a lot of stuff i'm really proud of and it feels like the opportunities are opening up for me to like call my own shots a little more in terms of like i want to write this book i can write a proposal i can pitch it sell it write it have it come out things like that that i like you know eight years ago when I moved here felt very far off or like if I wanted to, like I've done enough late night now that I'm like, Oh, I could probably do another one of these. If I like buckled down, made the right tape, sent Mm -hmm. it to a person who, who I've worked with in the past or someone who I haven't, but is like has expressed interest in my comedy. Like just the things that felt like such, um, like, stars that you wish upon like that remote are now like oh this is like this is part of the job and i'm a professional and and these are things that are like with and and my friends are doing them and like my peers are doing them and uh and so that's like it's so exciting i'm like true like really living the dream in a lot of ways and i feel so immensely fortunate and grateful for that well, congratulations on all of it. The, Thank you. The, the the job, the awards, the uh, the wife, the dog, <laughs> the sneakers, and Thank the you. book. Thank you. Uh, not necessarily in that order. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.